The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The antibody test touted as a game changer. With potentially hundreds of thousands of tests available each week, scientists can swiftly build a picture of how many people have had the virus, how old they are, and where they are located. Questions over Russia's huge number of cases, but relatively low number of deaths. Recent statistics by Moscow authorities suggest that hundreds of coronavirus deaths could have gone unreported. And could virtual therapy help prevent a mental health crisis? This is Coronavirus, the latest from The Telegraph. I'm Theodora Leloudis. The World Health Organization's warning European countries should brace themselves for a deadly second wave of coronavirus infections. The WHO's top official in Europe, Dr Hans Kluger, told The Telegraph now's the time for preparation, not celebration. He joined experts, including the UK's chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, in warning that a second wave could be even deadlier than the first. As Dr Kluger said, it could coincide with an outbreak of other infectious diseases, such as seasonal flu. It comes as the conversation turns towards who might have immunity, as The Telegraph revealed an antibody test kit showing whether people have ever had the virus was approved by Public Health England. Downing Street confirmed the news but played down suggestions that so-called immunity passports could be issued to people who've developed antibodies because the science remains uncertain. Frontline healthcare staff will be among the first to receive the blood test, which will be available on the NHS following negotiations with Swiss healthcare company Roche. The Telegraph's health correspondent Henry Bodkin says the new antibody test will answer many questions, but not all. With potentially hundreds of thousands of tests available each week, scientists can swiftly build a picture of how many people have had the virus, how old they are, and where they are located. This will give them an idea of the risks of a second wave if lockdown restrictions are eased. The big but is that because COVID-19 is a new virus, Scientists don't know for sure whether antibodies entail immunity, and if they do, how long that lasts. Studies of other coronaviruses suggest immunity wanes after about a year. However, the new testing capacity means that as each month goes by, we should get closer to answering that question. It's a question being looked at by Dr Simon Clark, Associate Professor in Cellular Microbiology at the University of Reading. He echoes Henry Bodkin, saying it's too early to say if measuring what antibodies somebody has and in what amounts is an accurate way of determining immunity. But he brought up something else. Some people are immune to some viruses altogether. We see that in certain other viral infections like HIV, where you get cohorts of people, usually quite small in number, who have a genetic mutation which doesn't affect their day-to-day lives, but which can prevent or reduce the likelihood of infection. If this would be the case with COVID-19, then there could be a subpopulation who never develop an antibody response, but who are less likely to get infected than someone who has. Across Europe, a picture's building of how many people have been infected with the virus. In England, one in 400 people is thought to have coronavirus, according to new data from the Office for National Statistics. It looked at swabs taken from 11,000 people in the three-week period to last Sunday. The study only looked at swabs taken outside of hospitals and care homes, where rates could be much higher. But 33 people tested positive, and households with health or care workers were several times more likely 
likely to have a confirmed case. The study concluded that at any given time over this period, an average of 0.27% of the community was estimated to have COVID-19. Studies in France and Spain have also been looking into how much the population may have ever had the virus inside and outside of institutions, and the results are lower than expected. Chris Price has the story. Around 65% of the population needs to be immune to allow for herd immunity. That means enough people are immune that the disease stops spreading. But just 5% of Spaniards and under 4.5% of the French population have developed antibodies, making them immune to the virus. That's according to two new studies, which have left a major blow to hopes of herd immunity. The Pasteur Institute found on May the 11th that even in the worst hit parts of France, in the east of the country and in the capital, only around 9-10% to 10% of people have had the virus. That's far higher than the number of confirmed cases, but far lower than anything that could lead to herd immunity. But France has already started to unwind its two-month-long lockdown, and such low levels of immunity mean the country is vulnerable to a second wave. In fact, the Institute recommends keeping control measures in place. The government says it hopes to avoid a second wave by sending a brigade of contact tracers around the country and by conducting 700,000 tests a week, the same number that the UK aims to carry out weekly, though the UK has yet to meet that over a seven-day period. But is herd immunity the answer? Well, while immunity is what we've strived for and what the international race to develop a vaccine is, of course working towards, the World Health Organisation on Wednesday condemned the idea of herd immunity for COVID-19. Dr Mike Ryan from the WHO's Health Emergencies Programme told a press conference in Geneva that no one is safe until everyone is safe. Humans... Uh, are not herds. Uh, And as such, the concept of herd immunity is generally reserved for calculating how many people would need to be vaccinated in the population in order to generate that same effect. The question is, how many lives will be lost before the widespread vaccination ensures immunity? Questions amounting over Russia's very low reported mortality rate. The country currently has the second highest number of confirmed cases, with over a quarter of a million people reported to have or have had the virus. Over 2,300 people have sadly lost their lives, but with a mortality rate of 0.9%, Russia's an outlier among the countries facing some of the worst COVID-19 outbreaks in the world. That means the country currently records 15 coronavirus deaths per million people compared to the global average of 36. Natalia Vasilyeva reports from Moscow. Russia's coronavirus fatality rate has been impressively low, but it's also in all likelihood wrong. Scientists and doctors explain that the death toll in Russia, which stands at 2,300, is so low primarily because it doesn't count every person who tested positive for coronavirus before dying as an epidemic victim, like they do in Italy or Spain. Data scientists also point to possible underreporting. Russian President Vladimir Putin has cited his country's relatively low death toll as one of the reasons for easing lockdown restrictions this week, despite a continuing growth in new cases. Data scientists have pointed to about 1,800 excessive deaths in Moscow in April using monthly average figures. Officials in the Russian capital, which has been badly hit by the epidemic, are standing by their numbers. But they acknowledge that as little as 40% of coronavirus deaths have been directly attributed to the impact of the disease. 
Health officials insist that hundreds of coronavirus patients ultimately died of other underlying conditions, so they should not be counted as COVID-19 fatalities. This would leave nearly 1,000 coronavirus deaths unreported in Moscow last month. The health crisis will leave in its wake a mental health crisis, according to the United Nations. It's urging governments to put the issue front and centre of their responses as millions of people worldwide are surrounded by death and disease and forced into isolation and poverty. The UN's encouraging policymakers to redress a historic underinvestment in psychological services by providing remote therapies such as online counselling for those most at risk. Earlier, I spoke to psychotherapist and founder of the online therapy platform Therapize, Talita Fosh. She's been conducting virtual therapy from her London flat, and she told me there might even be some benefits from not meeting face-to-face. I mean, I don't work any differently online as I would face-to-face, and I feel just as much of a connection with those clients sitting in the room as I do those I see online. A big factor in making therapy work for you is making it easily accessible. So for a lot of clients, it can be more practical to be in the space of their own home or somewhere they feel comfortable to have therapy in. Virtual therapy can also be less confronting than sitting in front of the therapist. And especially for those starting out in therapy, it can be less daunting if you have a screen in between you and the therapist. Obviously, in a virtual session, you can see less of the client's body language and therefore there's less of a human connection. This means that the client perhaps takes a little longer to warm to you as you're not in front of them. There's also the issue sometimes of poor internet connection, which can interrupt the flow of a session. But personally, I think you are still able to have the same connection. The therapy or work really lies within the therapeutic relationship. That is the relationship between the therapist and the client. And so even though you're not physically with the client, they are still able to build a relationship with you. This is an undeniably stressful time. If you're looking for some online calm, The Telegraph's resident psychologist, Linda Blair, who you may have actually heard on this podcast, she has some fantastic tips in a series published on our website. It's called Linda Blair's Daily Dose of Calm. Most of them feel pretty small. They're certainly easy to do. But I think if you did one a day, actually, the result could feel quite significant. I've been employing her tip from the 22nd of April, which you'll know if you've sent me an email recently, uh, because she advises not starting your emails with the generic, hope you're well, or what was my greeting of choice, the equally, if not more banal, hope you're doing okay. The idea is that we all need to feel a bit more connected at the moment. So start by personalising your email greetings and move on from there. If you email me at coronaviruspodcast at telegraph.co.uk, I promise to personalise my email greeting to you. That is admittedly harder when we don't know each other, but I will try my best. Get in touch if you have a question or a topic you think we should be covering. If you record your question on a voice memo on your mobile phone, you might even feature on our next episode. This is Coronavirus, the latest from The Telegraph. I'm Theodora Leloudis and I'll have your final update of the week on Friday evening. In the meantime, to read Linda's daily dose of calm, all of our science, news and health coverage and much, much more, head to telegraph.co.uk slash audio where you can get seven days free access to The Telegraph online. <laughs> 